Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners. And there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. The morning of October 4, 2007, was a foggy one for residents who lived off the coast of northeastern North Carolina. As the sun started to rise, visibility was very low on the Eden House Bridge, a mile and a half long bridge stretching over the Chowan River, connecting the coastal cities of Midway and Edenton. At around 7 a.m., a woman named Megan was driving in the right lane of the bridge, heading into Edenton, when her car smashed into the back of an older model Lincoln that had been driving way too slow for current conditions. The male driver and his car had essentially been sitting ducks. Megan's car then struck another vehicle, driven by a woman who had been passing in the left lane. Following the accident, the male driver, who was dressed in all black, got out of his Lincoln and made sure the other drivers were okay. As soon as the male driver knew everyone was fine, he made a beeline for his trunk, which had popped open as a result of the crash. The trunk lid could no longer close due to the crumpled back end. This seemed to be distressing to the man, who was trying to keep everyone away from the trunk. When he realized the lid wasn't going to stay closed, he frantically asked people if they had anything to tie the lid down. Finally, someone gave him a piece of rope and he was able to tie the lid down part way. But he still wanted people to stay away from the trunk. Megan thought the male driver was acting so strangely that she took out her camera and snapped a photo of the man standing next to his partially closed and crumpled up trunk. She had no idea there was a body inside. Welcome to episode 161, The Murder of Brad Smithwick. Ahoski, North Carolina is a nice place to raise children. In the early 2000s, Brad and Janet Smithwick married and started a family there. Both of them came from similar small towns, where life revolves around the church and family. The rural area has a lot of farms, and if you're not in the farming business, you may work at the steel rolling mill in nearby Cofield, as Brad would do once he became a father. Bradley Smithwick was born on June 16, 1974 in Windsor, North Carolina, and was described as being a good old country boy. He was sincere, genuine, and outgoing. He loved to laugh and joke around. Windsor is a small town, with the population rarely rising over 3,000 people. It was a close-knit community. On June 9, 1992, right after Brad graduated from high school, he enlisted in the Marines. 
It was something he had dreamed of doing for many years. He later served a tour in Somalia. Two years after he enlisted, Brad was stationed at a base in North Carolina. One night, he went to Edenton with some friends. That's where he met 20-year-old Janet Denise Harrell. Janet, who was described as being bubbly, had grown up in Edenton. She came from a devout Christian family. At age 20, she sang in the church choir and was in a Christian quartet. Edenton is also a small town, a colonial town on the coast, though a bit larger than Windsor, with a population hovering around 5,000 since the 70s. At 17 years old, Janet found out she was pregnant. The news shocked everyone, not just because Edenton was a small town, but because teen pregnancy seemed to go against everything the devout Janet stood for. When she turned 18, she married the father of her child, but the relationship didn't last. By the time Janet met Brad Smithwick in 1994, she was a 20-year-old single mother. In 1996, two years after they met, Janet and Brad were married. Their first few years as a young married couple were happy. They had a daughter the year after they married and a son just a year later. With three young children at home, Brad decided military life was no longer a good fit for him or his family. So in October of 1998, he left the Marines and went to work at New Corps Steel. It was hard work, but Brad would do anything to take care of his wife and children. Brad's mother told the TV show Snapped that at first, Janet was a good wife and mother. But after the birth of their children, she completely changed. Brad told his mother he couldn't do anything right. He became quiet and withdrawn, which was totally unlike the typically outgoing Brad. His mother definitely blames Janet for the marital problems, which, to be honest, is not unusual with mother-in-laws on either side. But this was different. The Smithwick marriage was falling apart. However, Brad was dead set against divorce, so he suggested counseling. His mother said he was a very strong Christian and would do anything to try and save his marriage. It's unclear if they ever went to counseling. If they did, it didn't appear to work, because by 2004, Janet and Brad were sleeping in separate bedrooms. In 2005, Brad moved out of the family home and filed for divorce. Janet was awarded primary custody of their two children, and Brad saw them every other weekend. The judge had evidently ruled this way because Brad was still living at home with his parents. Following his divorce, Brad signed up for an online dating service. That's where he met Cindy, a firefighter from Newport News. From the beginning, Brad made it clear to Cindy that she must be okay with his two children. He loved them more than anything in the world, and Cindy would have to understand that if she wanted to date him. Cindy was more than understanding, and she appreciated Brad's directness. They had their first date on September 24, 2005. Brad waited until their relationship became serious before he introduced Cindy to his children. In late September 2006, Brad took Cindy on a surprise trip. On September 23rd, the day before the anniversary of their first date, Brad proposed to Cindy as they flew over Niagara Falls in a helicopter. Cindy later told a newspaper that Brad proposed a day early so they could spend their one-year anniversary engaged. On February 24, 2007, five months after the Niagara Falls trip, Brad and Cindy had their first of two wedding ceremonies 
This one was small, with just close friends and family. The second, much bigger celebration was held at a Norfolk hotel in June. Brad and Cindy settled into a home in the 400 block of North Colony Avenue in Hasaki. Their main focus became securing full custody of Brad's children. The Smithwicks filed the necessary paperwork, starting a bitter custody battle. On October 3, 2007, Brad and Janet attended a court hearing. That day, the judge awarded Brad full custody of both children, although it's not clear how this happened. According to the show Snapped, Brad was given custody because Janet had been adulterous during her marriage to Brad. She had always come off as a devout Christian woman, the type who would never cheat. Supposedly, Janet's double life was enough to award Brad full custody. I find this a little hard to believe. I'll get into it more later, but it's not just as simple as she cheated so she loses her kids. Brad was scheduled to sign the custody paperwork two days later on October 5th, but he would never make it to the appointment. In the early morning hours of October 4th, 33-year-old Brad Smithwick got up for work. It was a normal Thursday for him, but he was up earlier than usual because of the fog. At around 6 a.m., Brad walked outside towards his Dodge truck, ready to drive to work. But before he could get behind the wheel, a masked man, dressed from head to toe in all black, emerged from the thick fog and accosted him. While the two men struggled in the driveway, Cindy woke up to the sound of the dogs going crazy. She called out to Brad to see if he could figure out what was going on, but he wasn't in the house. She stepped out onto the porch and saw Brad struggling with a strange man. Cindy watched in horror as the man pulled out a taser and fired at her husband. Brad hit the pavement, and the assailant knelt on his back, handcuffing Brad's wrists behind him. Brad yelled for Cindy to call 911, and she ran inside. While on the phone, Cindy heard Brad's Dodge truck start up. She rushed outside, but the truck, Brad, and the assailant were all gone. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Authorities knew they had to act fast. Officers rushed to the Smithwick house and a bolo for Brad's truck was sent out. At around 9 a.m., three hours after the abduction, the heavy fog had finally lifted and Brad's Dodge was found abandoned a few blocks from the Smithwick home. There was blood in the cab of the truck, which was later matched to Brad. Meanwhile, back at the Smithwick home, investigators were speaking with Cindy in hopes of getting more information. When they asked if anyone wanted to hurt Brad, she immediately answered yes, Brad's ex-wife Janet. While investigators looked into Janet, crime scene investigators got to work searching for clues. In the driveway, they located two pools of blood, 
and a scattering of tiny metal dots. They soon realized the dots were what's known as anti-felon identification tags, or taser confetti. In case you don't know, any time a taser is deployed, 20 to 30 metal dots containing the taser's serial number are released. The serial number can be run through a system to determine who purchased the taser. Investigators ran the serial number for the confetti found in the Smithwick driveway, and results showed the taser had been recently purchased by Raymond Christian Jadel, a police officer in the coastal city of Kitty Hawk. At first, investigators couldn't figure out why Ray would be involved in Brad's abduction. He was a police officer, after all. But then they spoke to a few locals and figured it out. Ray and Janet, Brad's ex-wife, were old friends from growing up in Edenton. And now, the old friends were currently dating. After Brad moved on with Cindy, Janet reconnected with Ray, who at the time was in Iraq, working for Blackwater, a private military security company contracted to work with the U.S. federal government, including the CIA. Ray's job was to protect high-profile officials, and according to his attorney, he was, quote, exposed to some really horrible things during that time. You may have heard of Blackwater. They became infamous following the September 16, 2007 Nisor Square Massacre in Baghdad. As far as I know, Ray Jadel didn't have any direct role in the massacre, and he lies about so many things but that's not to say he wasn't affected by his time with Blackwater. I just don't believe it's an excuse for his behavior in this case. Not by a long shot. In April 2006, Ray's contract with Blackwater was up, and he returned to North Carolina. He started working as a police officer for Kitty Hawk, a beach town located about 75 miles east of Edenton. And now that they were no longer long distance, Ray and Janet's relationship grew more serious. By the fall of 2007, they were living together in Janet's Edenton house. Ray kept ownership of his beach house, where he stored a boat. Back at the Smithwick home on October 4th, Cindy explained to investigators that Brad had been awarded full custody of his two children after a bitter custody battle with Janet. After hearing about how the custody battle ended up in Brad's favor, investigators figured they had the motive for the abduction. A few SBI agents went to Edenton to speak with Janet Harrell. She told them she wasn't involved in the abduction and didn't know anything about it. All she knew was that Ray had been in a car accident that day, so she had let him borrow her car. Janet pointed to an older model Lincoln, parked on her property. The car had obviously been smashed into. There was a spare tire sitting on top of the trunk in order to keep the lid closed. SBI agents contacted the officer who had responded to Ray's crash, Trooper Kevin Briggs. He told the agents that around 7 a.m., only an hour after Brad's abduction, Ray was traveling east on Highway 17, heading into Edenton, when he had to cross the Eden House Bridge. Due to the fog, Ray was driving at a low speed when a motorist hit him from behind, then struck another car that had been traveling in the left lane. Luckily, all drivers were uninjured. Briggs said Ray was acting strangely on the bridge that morning. First of all, Briggs had been surprised to find that Ray was traveling east toward Edenton. 
Briggs knew Ray and knew that he worked the night shift in Kitty Hawk, which was on the coast of North Carolina. After getting off work at 6 a.m., Ray would have been headed west to get to his home in Edenton. How did he end up on the Eden House Bridge heading east at 7 a.m.? It didn't make any sense. Briggs asked Ray what he was doing, and Ray said he was taking the long way home. Briggs knew something was up. Ray's behavior was bizarre, and his answers weren't adding up. He figured it had something to do with drugs, so he called for a canine, but they were on another call. By the time canine was available, the collision was getting cleared up, and Briggs had no real reason to hold Ray. He offered to give Ray a ride, but Ray said no. He wanted his girlfriend Janet to come pick him up. When he couldn't get a hold of Janet, Ray settled for riding with the tow truck driver. Ray left, and Briggs didn't see him again. SBI agents interviewed the tow truck driver, a man named Raleigh. He later spoke with WVEC about the drive he shared with Ray back to the auto shop. Raleigh said that during the drive, Ray was no longer acting weirdly. He had calmed down and was even friendly. He asked Raleigh if he could borrow his cell phone to call Janet so she could come pick up his stuff out of the Lincoln. Raleigh let Ray use the phone, and he was finally able to get a hold of Janet. Raleigh said that Janet showed up at the auto shop and immediately started loading everything from the trunk of the Lincoln into her car. He couldn't see what they were unloading, but when they were done, Ray demanded the car immediately be moved to Janet's home. Ray later told WVEC, quote, When I carried the car down to the girl's house and went to put the spare tire back in the trunk, there was nothing in it, nothing but the jack, no floor mat or nothing. Next, agents were assigned to interview Megan, the woman who rear-ended Ray on the bridge. She had a lot to say about Ray's behavior at the scene. Megan told the agents that after the collision, Ray got out of his car and made sure all the other drivers were okay. Then, he started acting bizarre. He made a beeline for his trunk, which had popped open as a result of the crash. The trunk lid could no longer close due to the crumpled back end. And this was very distressing to Ray, who seemed to be obsessed with keeping people away from the trunk. He kept frantically asking people if they had anything to tie the lid down. Finally, someone gave him a rope, and he was able to tie the lid down part way. Because the lid wouldn't close all the way, Ray didn't want anyone to go near the trunk. He kept his hand on the top, trying to keep it as closed as possible. Megan told the agents that Ray had been acting so strangely that she took out her camera and snapped a photo. And when I say camera, I mean an actual camera, the kind that uses film. Remember, this is 2007, a time before cell phone cameras replaced personal cameras with film. After hearing about the photo, agents asked if they could have the film. Megan said she could do them one better. She had already had the film developed. She handed them an 8x10 glossy photo. One of the agents took the photo and looked it over. He saw Ray, dressed in all black, from his neck to his feet, standing to the left of his Lincoln, which was parked on the shoulder of the bridge. The back left part of the car was smashed in, and the trunk was popped open. It clearly couldn't close because the metal was crumpled in. There was a rope tied to the top left side of the lid, and it was attached to the bottom center of the trunk. There was around a foot of space between the lid and where the trunk would normally latch. 
the agent looked closely at the open space and immediately noticed a tarp. He had a feeling it was wrapped around Brad's body. You can view Megan's picture on my website. SBI agents obtained a warrant to search Ray's Lincoln, which was still at Janet's. When they opened the trunk lid, they found absolutely nothing. The trunk had been stripped and cleaned. All that remained was bare metal. Knowing how difficult it would be to find any physical evidence, agents brought in one of their best crime scene investigators to look over the trunk, and he was able to find something, a single speck of blood on the trunk seal. He cut it out and sent it to the crime lab. Agents then got a search warrant for Janet Harrell's house. They found a picture of Brad and empty boxes for a pair of handcuffs and a taser. Agents also found a lot of cash. They weren't sure why she had that much cash, but they didn't have any reason to take it, so they ended up leaving it. Maybe she was saving up funds for a defense attorney. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. It was a dark and stormy night. We were supposed to watch a scary movie, and I had just disappeared. My husband soon found me, curled up in my favorite chair playing Best Fiends. He didn't have to look far. He knows how obsessed I am with Best Fiends. I've been playing for a few years, and I never get tired of it. I'm on level 5260 right now. It's an easy obsession because I can pick up and play a few levels anytime with offline play. Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. Right now is the season of nature, where you beat levels to win dice and roll until the slug gets to the seventh floor so you can win a new fiend called North Polian. Brand new events and challenges pop up all year round, so you've always got a chance to earn exclusive in-game items, characters, and rewards. Download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get five bucks worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a true crime podcaster, my mind often lives in dark places. I have to remind myself to take care of it. Think of it like remembering to get your oil changed in your car. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. We might do crossword puzzles to stimulate our brains or take power naps to clear our minds after a long day. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain. And there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I believe in therapy, not just to get through hard times, but to maintain my mental health and well-being. Personally, I love the convenience of BetterHelp, but I also think if you've never tried therapy, BetterHelp is a great way to get started. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Southern. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Southern. Investigators also searched Ray's beach house and found that he stored a boat there. When they looked in the boat, they found anchors, homemade, out of concrete, Agents described them as being similar to what Scott Peterson used in the murder of his wife, Lacey, only three years prior. 
Investigators questioned what the angers were for. They didn't appear to be manufactured that day, which meant Ray must have made them prior to October 4th. Investigators held onto the anchors, hoping they would fit into the story soon. At this point, it looked like the person responsible for Brad's abduction and likely murder was Ray Jadel, so a bolo was issued. At around 5 p.m., Ray showed up at the police station after hearing he was a wanted man. He walked in with his arms up and raised up his shirt to show he wasn't armed. He was placed in an interview room with SBI agent David Nance, who immediately noticed that Ray had blood on his black pants. Nance asked Ray about Brad and his abduction, but he said he didn't know anything about the attack. The only thing he would admit to was buying a taser. When Nance pressed him, Ray maintained that he was innocent. No one believed him. He was arrested, and his clothes were collected for evidence, and he was taken to jail. His wallet was seized and searched. Inside, investigators found a scrap of paper with handwritten directions to Brad's house in a hosky. The paper was sent off for handwriting analysis. Ray Jadel was subsequently charged with first-degree kidnapping and armed robbery and was held on a $10 million bond. The Kitty Hawk Police Department then placed Jadel on suspension without pay. Within a week of his arrest, he was transferred to a different facility. The Department of Corrections stated the transfer was for Ray's protection since he was a police officer. Following Ray's arrest, Brad's wife Cindy told 13 News that she had never seen him before that morning. She said as soon as she saw a picture of Ray Jadel, she knew he was the man she had seen in her driveway. With the murderer in custody, investigators continued searching for 33-year-old Brad Smithwick. After finding out about the wreck Ray Jadel had been in, authorities focused their search near the Eden House Bridge. WVEC reported that boats with sonar and divers searched the water while canines searched the water's edge and nearby wooded areas. But there was no sign of Brad anywhere. The next day was October 5th, the day Brad was supposed to sign paperwork to gain full custody of his son and daughter. But instead of doing that, Investigators were searching for his body and canvassing the area around Ray and Janet Harrell's homes. Many neighbors around Janet's home told investigators that Ray and Janet had both talked about how Brad was threatening Janet over their bitter custody battle. Neighbors said Janet was terrified Brad was going to show up at her house and do something violent. But when officers asked further questions, they found out that no one had ever actually seen Brad around the neighborhood. Ray and Janet had not reported any vandalism, weird occurrences at their place, or anything you would expect to see in a situation when someone is harassing an ex. Mind you, Ray was a police officer. He would know how to follow protocol and make reports so there would be an official record. It could only help Janet in court. Plus, Based on what officers had heard about Brad, he didn't seem like the threatening type. In fact, evidence was pointing in the opposite direction. It seemed way more likely that Janet was the threatening one. When speaking with investigators, Brad's mom Connie said that prior to his abduction, 
Brad confided in her that he believed Janet was either going to kill him or have him killed. Connie told investigators that when she found out Brad was missing, she immediately thought Janet was responsible. That day, October 5th, Janet Harrell was arrested for being an accessory after the fact. Authorities were basing this charge off the tow driver's statement that Janet showed up and helped move everything from Ray's trunk over to her car. When investigators brought Janet in for questioning, she refused to say anything. She was held on a $3 million bond. Later, Janet and Ray would be charged with additional crimes. Investigators just had to wait for results to come back on multiple pieces of evidence. Most importantly, finding Brad's body. In the meantime, Janet's car was searched, but no evidence was found. It's unclear, based on our research, if the car had been cleaned and that's why there was no evidence, or if there was just no evidence in general. Investigators continued their search for Brad's body, but they weren't having any luck. All they had to go on was a final ping from Brad's cell phone. The ping could help narrow the search down a little, but it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. On October 9th, five days after Brad was abducted, a North Carolina wildlife officer was using the ping information to search the Edenton Airport area. While on Country Club Drive, the officer spotted vehicle tracks that left the road and drove straight up to the edge of the woods. The officer made his way into the woods, walked in just a little bit, and found Brad's body, still wrapped in a tarp. He was face down and handcuffed behind his back. Due to the level of decomposition, Brad had to be identified by tattoos on his back. An autopsy showed that Brad had been shot once through the temple. He had numerous post-mortem injuries, which most likely came from being in the trunk during Ray's car accident. It was impossible to tell when Brad had been shot, but based on Cindy's statement, they knew he wasn't killed in the driveway of his home at 6 a.m. Ray had only used a taser on him at that point. And based on Brad's post-mortem injuries, he was dead by 7 a.m. when Ray got into the accident. That only left an hour window, and the drive between the Smithwick home and the bridge is 40 minutes. Investigators weren't sure where Brad was murdered either. It didn't appear to be in Brad's truck or in Ray's car because there were no bullet holes found in either. But Ray and Janet weren't talking, so investigators would have to keep digging if they wanted to find the answers. Following the discovery of Brad's body, Cindy told WVEC, quote, Of course, he is not home under the circumstances that we would like him to be, but he is home and he's in his permanent home with God. That is a small comfort, pretty much the only comfort that we have right now. When asked how the public could help, Cindy said that in lieu of flowers, she would appreciate donations to a fund set up for Brad's children. She told WVEC about how Brad had been fighting for custody prior to his murder. She said she would keep fighting for them, stating, it was an agreed-upon thing. We would sell this house, everything in it, dig the dirt out and sell it if we had to, to protect those kids. And I'm willing to do that as well. Anything it takes. Cindy said she knew Brad loved his kids more than anything, and he would want her to make sure they were protected. 
She added, If Brad could tell me anything right now, he would tell me that he loved me and to take care of the kids. In interviews with the media, Cindy made sure to remind everyone that two children now had no parents due to Janet and Ray's actions. She said, Brad didn't deserve this, and those kids don't deserve to be robbed of their father. Later, the Smithwick children went to live with Brad's parents. Authorities continued building their case against Ray and Janet. Based on all the information they had compiled, they now theorized that Janet was likely the mastermind behind the whole murder. The plan was for Ray to go to Brad's house and taser him when he was heading out to his truck for work. Ray would then take Brad back to his and Janet's house and then shoot him. They would tell the police that Brad had snuck into their house in an attempt to attack Janet and Ray, but Ray got to him first and shot in self-defense. That's why they went around the neighborhood telling their neighbors a false story about how Brad was harassing them and that they were scared. Ray and Janet were hoping officers would do a canvas and neighbors would tell them something like, oh yeah, Ray and Janet told us that Brad had been threatening them. The neighbors' statements would corroborate the self-defense shooting. Ray would be cleared of Brad's murder and Janet would regain custody of her children. It would be happily ever after for them. But the plan went wrong. Cindy was not supposed to witness the abduction. Ray could no longer take Brad back to the house and set the scene to look like self-defense. He had to go with plan B, dump Brad's body in the water using the homemade anchors. But then that plan was foiled when Ray got into the car accident. With all of their plans out the window, Janet had to meet Ray at the auto shop. They took Brad's body and everything else out of Ray's trunk and transferred it into Janet's car. The Lincoln was towed to Janet's house, then Ray took Janet's car to dump Brad's body. After figuring out a solid theory on what happened to Brad Smithwick, all that was left to do was wait on results from the evidence sent off for testing. In November, the two pools of blood found in the Smithwick driveway, the blood found in Ray's trunk, and the blood found on Ray's pants were all matched to Brad through DNA testing. Ray Jadel was then charged with Brad's first-degree murder. At his arraignment, he pled not guilty, telling the judge, It's a shame if something happened, but it wasn't me. They have the wrong person. I would never do that. Many people were shocked by Ray's arrest. His sister Bonnie told WVEC, People have been calling me, and they cannot comprehend that this happened. I know my poor father can't. Bonnie described Ray as being very controlled. She said he loved his job, and that's why she couldn't understand why he was involved. Bonnie stated, He would know that this would ruin his life and ruin my parents' life and his family. Whatever it was, whatever trigger, I don't know. Maybe he snapped. Maybe going out to all those countries wasn't such a hot idea. We don't know. Bonnie added, My brother has no excuse whatsoever. If he has done something, there is no excuse for it. But anyone who has ever known my brother wouldn't think he would ever cross a line like that. After the handwriting for the directions to Brad's house was matched to Janet, she was additionally charged with first-degree kidnapping, first-degree murder, and armed robbery. At her arraignment, she remained silent, except for when she pleaded not guilty. Many people were shocked by the charges against Janet, 
who was known as a good Christian woman in her community. Ray later told Snapped that by November 2008, he still wasn't talking, and authorities were getting worried that they wouldn't have enough evidence to convict Janet of first-degree murder. Hoping to push Ray into a confession, they charged him with capital murder. The death penalty was now on the table. But Ray still wouldn't tell them what he knew. He told Snapped the reason why is because Janet really did not play a role in Brad's murder. He repeated his claims that Brad harassed Janet, stating that he would bang on doors, sneak around at night, call from unlisted numbers, etc. He said once Brad even broke inside Janet's house and trashed her bedroom, but she didn't go to the cops because she was scared. Ray explained to Snapped that without Janet's knowledge, he stepped in to handle the situation with Brad through a conversation, not through murder. A man-to-man talk. Ray said he went to Brad's house on October 4th to talk to him. He wanted them to come to an agreement where Brad would leave Janet alone. But that didn't happen because the talk escalated after Brad punched Ray. He actually claimed Brad sucker punched him. Ray said he then pulled out his taser and warned Brad that he would use it. Brad ignored him and tried to kick Ray, so Ray tasered Brad and then he fell to the ground. Ray then reached down and tried to help Brad up. He said that's when Cindy stepped out onto the porch. Cindy thought she saw Ray handcuffing Brad, but what she really saw was Ray helping Brad get untangled out of the taser wires. Ray explained to Snapped that he was about to call out to Cindy to let her know that everything was okay when Brad begged him not to. He said he didn't want Cindy to know he had been harassing Janet. Brad then asked Ray to help him get away. They both got into Brad's truck and drove to Ray's car, which was parked a few blocks away. When they got out of the truck, Brad's gun fell on the ground. Ray picked it up and wouldn't give it back, so Brad lunged and they started wrestling. The gun discharged and Brad was shot in the head. Ray said he was shocked and heartbroken over Brad's accidental death. He panicked and put Brad's body in the trunk and started driving to the Kitty Hawk Police Department. Ray said he planned on telling his captain what had happened, but along the way, he pulled off the road and decided to get rid of Brad's body. He got into the accident after he dumped the body he claimed. There are several pieces of this story that are just ridiculous. First of all, if it's just a man-to-man talk, why dress in all black and sneak up to Brad in his driveway in the dark early morning hours? Why hide his car? Why did he need a gun and taser? Why not do it out in the open with witnesses if he thought there might be trouble? Why had he made the homemade anchors? Cindy said Brad yelled for her to call 911, so the statement that he didn't want Cindy to know anything makes no sense. Oh, and how do you wrestle a man whose arms are handcuffed behind his back? More importantly, how does a gun go off accidentally right into Brad's temple? And if Janet didn't know about his plans, Why was all that evidence at her house? The photo of Brad so Ray would know what he looked like. The handcuffs and taser boxes. Oh, and why would Ray have directions to Brad's house in Janet's handwriting in his pocket if she had nothing to do with it? But this moron was sticking to his story. Ray later told Snapped that even with the death penalty on the table, he wasn't planning to speak to the prosecution. 
But then he found out Janet went to the DA and negotiated a deal where she would plead guilty to second-degree murder. Ray said he was shocked by Janet's choice because he knew that she was innocent. After Janet made the deal, Ray was told by his attorney to take one as well. If he didn't, he could get the death penalty. So Ray took his attorney's advice. On November 23, 2010, right before her trial was due to start, Janet Harrell entered an Alford plea to second-degree murder. She was sentenced to a minimum of 13 years and a maximum of 16.5 years. That same day, Ray Jadel pled guilty to first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. Brad's mother, Connie, told the Chowan Herald that she and her husband, Donald, agreed to the plea bargains and sentences because they were in Brad's children's best interest. She said, We wanted things resolved as quickly as possible because of the children. We wanted to keep the children safe as long as possible. They were concerned that they would have to go back and live with their mother. Connie added, Even though he took my son's life, him getting the death penalty would not bring my son back. I believe if he could relive that day, things might be different. Only he, Janet, and the Lord know what took place. At Ray Jadel's sentencing, Connie addressed him, telling him that she knew he was a victim as well. He had been manipulated by Janet. I'm not so sure about that, but he is a moron, so she could have a point. Following Ray's sentencing, he requested to speak with Connie and Donald. He told them he wanted to explain what happened on October 4th, 2007. His story was similar to the one he told on Snapped, although it differed a bit. Ray admitted to kidnapping Brad, but maintained that he didn't want to kill him. While driving around, he said he hit the brakes and a gun slid out from under the floorboard. They fought over the gun, which went off and shot Brad in the head. His death was an accident. Ray's new story is also complete and utter bullshit. This story is just as bad as the other one. Again, Brad was handcuffed behind his back. How can a handcuffed guy struggle for the gun? When speaking with the Chowan Herald, Connie mentioned that Janet hadn't asked to meet with them to explain her role in the murder. With that being said, Connie and Donald do not speak badly of Janet in front of Brad's children, she said. Instead, they try to teach them to learn to forgive. Janet Harrell was released from prison on Halloween in 2020. Her parole ended on July 28, 2021. Ray is still incarcerated in Pender Correctional Institution in Burgall, North Carolina, where he belongs. The fact that he kept up the charade of defending Janet and pretending she had nothing to do with Brad's murder is galling. Even more galling is his insistence that it was an accident. The TV show Snapped features him quite a bit, telling his lies. They aren't exactly known for their hard-hitting journalism, but it's hard to watch a murderer lie with no one challenging him. They even pull the old trick of interviewing him in a white t-shirt, so you don't know he's the murderer right away. He's identified as a friend of Janet's. Why would he dress all in black, go to the Smithwick home on foot, in the dark fog, to just talk to Brad? Why bring a gun and a taser? Why have homemade anchors? These are not hard questions. Brad Smithwick was shot in the temple. 
with his hands handcuffed behind his back. That's not an accident. That's an assassination. And as for Janet Harrell, it is difficult to swallow that the woman who planned the brutal murder of the father of her children is already out of prison. I always thought the reasoning for Janet losing custody kind of sounded like bullshit. Obviously, I am no divorce court judge, but I do have some personal experience as well as what friends have been through. So I checked the North Carolina statutes and learned, per Jerkins family law, that adultery rarely affects child custody. North Carolina's standard is in the best interest of the child. If the spouse committing adultery did not expose the children to inappropriate or dangerous situations related to the affair and is otherwise a fit parent, he or she will retain legal custody. So if Janet did lose custody based on adultery, it would have been in extreme circumstances. Brad's mother told Snapped that he had commented to her that Janet lived two lives. The church knew her one way, I know her another, he said. And I guess he proved it. I can't help but wonder in cases like this, why does the cheating parent fight so hard for custody? I'm not suggesting they don't love their kids, but if their infidelity was so bad that it affected their parenting, that seems to suggest that they are enjoying the lifestyle of someone single and carefree. But in so many bitter custody battles, children are treated as possessions. They are pawns on the chess game their parents are playing. And worse, some parents may want full custody in order to collect child support. I am not certain whether or not Janet worked after marrying Brad. Certainly, his family said he left the military and started working at the steel mill to support his family, including Janet's child from her first marriage. As a couple, they seem to be very conservative Christians. Mom stays home with kids while Dad works. Maybe this was the actual problem. Janet may have won the first round of custody the way many women do. She didn't leave the marital home, and she is the mother. We still live in a society that considers the mother the primary parent, particularly in the South. Also, Brad's family said he lost primary custody the first time because he was still living with his parents. Once he bought a new home and remarried, he refiled for custody, and this time was successful. And Janet couldn't stand this. Obviously, if Brad were killed, she wouldn't be getting child support payments, so that makes his murder just outright revenge. Which makes the fact that she is out of prison even more sickening. She's my age. She probably has decades more to live. Maybe her children have forgiven her. If it gives them peace, then I hope so. But I can't help but hope that they turn their backs on her for good. She doesn't deserve them, and she doesn't deserve the grandchildren that Brad will never know. Southern Fried True Crime is hosted and produced by me, Erica Kelly. Today's episode was researched and written by Haley Gray, with additional writing by me. Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio, and the original graphic art is by Coley Horner. This episode was suggested by Albert Bubba Summerlin, a retired assistant special agent in charge for the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. Agent Summerlin assisted with the investigation in Brad's case. 
he was gracious enough to not only recommend the topic, but speak with us on multiple occasions to make sure we got the details right. So thank you to Agent Summerlin. And y'all don't forget to go check out the photo of Ray's Lincoln after the crash on my website. Side note, if you're looking for episode notes, like where this photo would be, go to my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com, and click on the episode tab, and then click on the photo thumbnail of the case you're looking for. The link to episode notes on each case is found on the show notes of the show in your podcast app. If you have any case suggestions, also go to my website and go to the listener suggestion tab. This is the best way for me to get those little known cases y'all always send me. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on all large platforms like iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, and now Amazon and Audible. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.